Welcome to SocialCast, the weekly podcast talking about enduring societal hurdles in the United States and how socialism offers a way past them. Hey there, welcome back to SocialCast. I'm Derek. And I'm Lance. And today, we're going to be talking about why your worth is more than a wage. Now, this is a kind of two-topic conversation. The first is definitely going to be focused on why your boss is absolutely shafting you by paying you as little as they are. And the second is going to be more focused on the psychosocial implications of modern-day wage slavery. The exact same spot, bro. I'm aware. <laughs> Whatever. We're going to keep going. Okay. So, for a lot of people, when we think about the most overworked people on Earth, it's a really easy conclusion to think that it is the Japanese people with their strict work culture, high at-work suicide rate, and their focus on efficiency, it's just super easy to think that they're the most overworked people on Earth. However, Japanese people work, on average, 137 hours less than American workers. American workers also work 260 hours more than British workers and almost 500 hours more than our French counterparts. I'm just giving you the opportunity to talk if you want to. Anytime I turn my head like that, if you have something you want to say, that's the time. Okay. I do not have anything to say at this moment. Cool. On top of that, since 1950, the productivity of U.S. workers has increased more than 400%. Pay, however, has not kept pace with that increase in productivity. In 1950, the minimum wage was 75 cents per hour. Today, it's $7.25 per hour. While that amount of increase is much more than the 400% increase in productivity, we also have to look at inflation. Since 1950, the US dollar has increased in value more than 991%. So what that means is a single $1950 would be worth $10.91 today. If wages had increased commensurately with inflation, the minimum wage today would be about $32.74, and that's before considering the 400% increase in productivity. So when we're talking about why your worth is more than a wage on the, the business side of the conversation, there are a lot of different things that come into play. 
The first, the most important, the thing that if I could, I would hammer home into everyone's heads is that if you make the minimum wage, what that means is that your boss would pay you less if it were legal to do so. And in some cases, there are even exceptions to earning what the federal minimum wage is, that $7.25 per hour. Uh, if you are an employee who is in a, in a tipped profession, such as bartenders, servers, etc., you can be making as little as $2.31, I believe. I might be wrong on the exact cent figure there, but uh, you are making, you could be making much less per hour uh, than the standard minimum wage. Also, if you are disabled and receiving um, disability social security income, you can also, if you do have a job, you can also be paid significantly less than the standard federal minimum wage. That's absolutely true. That is honestly my biggest complaint with Goodwill Industries because they employ disabled or differently abled individuals specifically because they don't have to pay them as much as their able-bodied counterparts. It's an, an absolute racket, and I know that it, it might provide a sense of participation or, or usefulness to people who are, are moving through life with a, a disability, but for a company to exploit that, and this is, this is at the root, what we're talking about is the exploitation of the workforce. For a company to exploit the fact that, that disabled folks want to participate in our economy, want to participate more in our society, it's, it's just vile, it's disgusting. And I think you actually touched on a really interesting concept in that last statement there when you mentioned that people who live differently abled still want to contribute to the economy and they still want to work is often when we hear concepts of universal basic income and higher minimum wages and universal health care and universal housing is, well, then people just won't want to work. Well, we have a group of people who are already severely underpaid and they are still wanting to work. They still want to contribute and be a participant in the economy. So that argument just flies right out the door. Um, I think it's also really interesting to mention here, and we can definitely touch on this um, in another episode, of how the minimum wage came about because of strong organized labor unions and a socially progressive political establishment. I think this is a, a fine time to have that conversation. I know we're we're planning an episode more in depth on the the vital role that unions play in balancing our our economic system, but the the simple reality is that when we're looking at the things that we kind of take for granted right now, the 5-day work week, the 40-hour work week, the minimum wage, all of these things are things that were bought and paid for by unions. They did the fight, they laid the groundwork, they wrote the legislation, they lobbied senators and 
representatives and, and they were the ones who got those things passed. Child labor laws are another thing. And so it is, it is absolutely a, a fine time to bring up the role in workplace mitigation that unions have played. Moving on to, to the next most important thing. Let's say you make about $42,000 a year. That's a right around the median wage for the United States right now. And I don't like median because the average is $31,000 and some change, but the, the median wage is 42, $43,000. When you add in the, the cost to businesses for a benefits package, you get around $60,000 per employee per year. So if, if you're looking at a company that has 100 employees, that's $6 million that they're paying in payroll. They're, they're spending that directly on their employees. But at the low end of the spectrum, the, the same study that gave us that information showed us that the, the low end of workplace productivity had workers generating three times that much money. So for, for $6 million in labor expenditures, a company can reasonably think that they're going to make $18 million in profit. Well, $18 million in revenue, $12 million in profit. And that was the, the low end. At the high end, it was almost nine times as much. And so that, that $60,000 becomes a pittance compared to how much money that $60,000 a year worker is making for the company. And this is where we really start looking at your employer is absolutely shafting you because when you're generating as much as nine times more money than you're making that is a huge amount of profit for for your employer and this is really what we're talking about when we throw around phrases like seize the means of production is the amount of money that is being made and the amount of profit that is being made by you selling your labor to these companies is orders of magnitude higher than what you are being compensated. You could be making a tenth of what your company is making compared to what they are spending on paying you. And capitalists bank on the workforce being too afraid to ask for the pay that they are worth. They, every, every job has a, a set pay window that new employees are going to start at. And very frequently, that pay window does not take into consideration any amount of experience, any amount of education. It's just, this is the position, this is how much it pays if you want it. You can apply for it and interview for it and hope that you get it. And if you don't want it, you can move on to the next thing. But the, the reality of that situation is that if, if every worker in America stood up to their employer and demanded what they were worth to that company, 
we would see an economic revolution the likes of which no country on earth has ever seen. Because at the same time that, that business owners and C-suite executives are banking on us, not asking for what we're worth, we, we see this embodied perfectly in the fight for 15. And I know that we've, we've talked in the past about how $15 isn't enough. And especially in the context of this conversation right now, 3274, again, that's the, the rate of inflation since 1950. $15 is less than half of the 3274 that we should be making if wages kept up with inflation. But what we see are these people in more skilled positions going absolutely ballistic, saying, why should a burger flipper make as much as I do? Why should a fry guy make as much as I do? Why should a janitor make as much as I do? Here's the thing, boys and girls. Your labor isn't comparative to their labor. Them making more isn't a sign that you should be upset with them for demanding a living wage. It's that you should be upset with your employer for not paying you what you're worth. And I think there's also the topic here that no matter what your job is, there's a fundamental truth in that is that any job worth being done by a person means that job should be paid so that that person can live. Not like royalty, not extravagantly, just to live. To have their basic needs met, shelter, food, electricity, internet access, all of the things that we have already talked at length about and established as essential to modern human existence. These things shouldn't be unachievable. I know people right now who are, are living on social security disability income because they are disabled. They cannot participate in the workforce. They are physically incapable of doing so. And the amount of money that they make from their, their SSDI payments each month is not enough to pay all of their bills. They don't have garbage service. They're behind on their electric bills. And if, if water and sewer weren't included in their rent, they'd be behind on their water and sewer and they might have that shut off as well. If we weren't in the middle of a pandemic right this minute and there hadn't been a moratorium on utility shutoffs, they wouldn't have electricity. So, these, these things should not be out of reach for any American. They just shouldn't. And to put it quite simply, we all deserve access to the basic essentials. And if we're not going to have a society or a government that is able to provide those essentials for us, we need to be paid enough to get those essentials. And at the same time that companies depend on workers being too afraid to ask for what they're worth, they also depend on the low wage that they're paying to create a sense of desperation so that their workforce doesn't disappear. Like if, if, and this is the one thing that I think in, in economic and labor discussions, I might almost agree with libertarians about if you have one employer who's paying $7 and you have another employer that's paying $21 for the exact same work. 
people aren't going to apply for the $7 an hour job, they're going to apply for the, the $21 per hour job. And what we would see eventually, inevitably, is that company that's only offering $7 would either have to offer a competitive wage or they're going to disappear. But the reality of the current American capitalist economic situation is that every employer pays low wages. And you can't escape that. You can, you can get educated. You can get trained. You can hope that you're going to be able to find a job with the, the educational and training background that you, you went in for and hope that that's going to make you a better hourly wage. But on the whole, that's not going to happen. Companies don't want to pay workers what they're worth because then the people at the very top that aren't creating the wealth, that aren't doing the work, those people would make less money. And then the, the final thing that we really need to talk about in terms of the, the business side of why your worth is more than your wage is the, the PTO struggle, the paid time off struggle. So a lot of employers will have two different banks of paid time off, one for sick time and one for vacation time. Sick time you get to use when you have a doctor's appointment that you know is scheduled. You can call that day and say, hey, I've got a doctor's appointment. I'm not going to make it in today. Use my sick time to pay me. And it's, it's also used when you wake up and you're sick and you can't go to work. Vacation time is a little different because that you generally have to plan ahead of time. You have to get it approved. If the completely arbitrary powers that be say yes, then you can start planning. But if it takes them forever, because most businesses don't schedule two or three months in advance when you have to buy tickets for things, you're, you generally you've already bought your tickets. And then if a company says, no, sorry, you can't have this time off, you're just screwed because you've already spent the money on your vacation. And we know that airlines and cruise lines are super hesitant to offer any kind of refunds or rescheduling flexibility. I think this is another part where companies extend these benefits as part of their compensation package to entice more employees to join their workforce often in lieu of a higher pay. And then they make these benefits virtually inaccessible. They make it, you know, let's say you work a, a Monday through Friday, nine to five, but they don't let you take time off to go to the doctor. They don't let you schedule that day off. So now you can't access your health benefits. And then they make it, like you were saying, a Herculean task to try and get your PTO set up, scheduled, and approved so you can't ac access your PTO bank. Well, and a big component of that as well is the fact that most employers only let you hire enough people to do the work. There's no extra. There's no cushion. So me, as, as somebody who has spent two decades in retail management, it's impossibly hard 
to take a vacation because as a manager, there's not a lot of, of give and take. Anytime a manager is missing, the entire store feels the lack of that coverage because a, a manager can pop into any role. They can be a stalker. They can be a customer service representative. They can answer phones. They can cashier. They can do generally anything in the business. And so from from the outset, retail workers have a harder time getting vacation time approved. But then there's also the fact that most retail schedules are made two to three weeks in advance. Absolutely impossible to schedule around. There's also the blackout periods. The the two biggest family holidays in this country are, are Thanksgiving and Christmas. Those are the two holidays that families are like, hey, are you coming? Hey, are you coming? Hey, are you coming? And if you're a retail or service industry worker, the answer is most likely going to be no. Because from the beginning of November to generally the middle to the end of January, depending on the specific retailer's return policy for holiday returns, there's a huge blackout window. So now you've got a store with, say, 40 employees, and if each one of them has two weeks of vacation, that's 80 80 weeks of vacation a year for a 52-week calendar. So you're already going to be extra short because you don't have the authorization to hire the people to replace those workers that are going to be out on vacation theoretically every week or the entire year. But now you've condensed those 80 weeks of vacation time into a nine-month window. It's, it's an impossible thing. And so many companies, so many companies talk about how their generous time-off package is one of their biggest selling points for, for their employment recruit, or employee recruitment spiel. But they don't talk about how completely inaccessible it is. There's another point here that I want to kind of bounce off from your retail example and use my experience in healthcare, and that is the concept of um, patient-nurse ratios, which are determined, it's very complicated based on level of care, state regulation, um, specific patient acuity in the moment. And it basically comes down to you can have, in a hospital unit, you have to have X nurses per Y patients. And the generally accepted ratio for med surge level of care is five patients to one nurse. And in ICU, it's different. In other settings, it's different. In labor and delivery, it's different. Anyways, um... If you have ex-nurses that are hired by the hospital and you have, like you were saying, enough to make the schedule work and then one of them has to take time off or wants to take time off, you can now only have so many patients, which means you are going to have to operate at a lower capacity. So let's say you have 100 beds and so many of your nurses take X time off and now you say, okay, well we have the hundred physical beds, but we can only fill 80 of them because these nurses are off. Or maybe you're a healthcare organization and you're operating in the midst of a pandemic and you have anywhere from 15 to 20 nurses call out 
her shift. And so you not only have to account for slim staffing schedules anyway, you also have to deal with the potential of having two or three nurses on your unit calling out her shift, which is typically a 12-hour shift twice a day, usually at the 7 and the 7. And that can say, okay, well, we had 20 patients and we were staffed for that, but now we're not getting two staff members for the next shift, so we're going to be understaffed, which means we're going to lose capacity, so we're either going to have to transfer patients to other units or hope they discharge soon. And, and that actually brings up another thing that I hadn't thought of until right now, but bouncing back to the inaccessibility of healthcare based on scheduling, this is a, a pretty important component because when your employer doesn't grant you adequate paid time off for sick time to, to really take care of not just your physical health, but also your mental health, you get employees that experience burnout. And this is something that I have intimate experience with and knowledge of because I, I left the workforce for two years because I had ignored my mental health for so long and prioritized my position wherever I was working that it invariably got to a point where I literally could not function. And in a, a healthy society, we're not looking solely at the bottom line of that profit margin. We're looking holistically at our entire workforce and saying, okay, so let's be realistic. This is how many people we need to do the job, but we know we're going to be missing people from time to time. So let's hire X number more employees and maybe we'll we'll have everybody work 32 hours a week and still offer them benefits instead of work them 40 hours per week and offer them benefits but have less people and and that kind of economic calculus it's fucking infuriating is what it is because i i read a study that shows that there's about 15 hours of work per American worker. And so when when we're expecting people to work 40 hours a week, what we're doing is creating a situation where the workforce can't be expanded. So people are always going to be unemployed. We are designing a system where people are going to be unemployed because for each working person, there's 15 hours of work. And so for, for a 40-hour work week, that's three people for the, the actual amount of work per working person. And now we've got one person hogging a job that three people could be doing. And we, we justify that by saying, okay, well, we're only going to pay you $7.50. And we're going to advertise that as higher than minimum wage. We're going to pay you $7.50 and you're going to work 40 hours a week. And that is how employers create desperation because they know as, as the people making these decisions that at any point in time, if any one employee is unhappy with how things have, have been set up, if they leave, there are handfuls 
of employees ready to go. And this is this is another key thing. If something catastrophic happens, let's say, Lance, that you are driving to work and you are in a fatal car accident, how long is it going to take before your body has been replaced at work? Minutes. And that's the bottom line. That's assuming that they wait the usual 15 minutes after my time of arrival and not being able to get a hold of me and call the supervisor and say, hey, Lance hasn't shown up. We haven't been able to get a hold of him. What should we do? The supervisor will come in right that second and meanwhile also be trying to find one of the on-call people to come in right then. And I will not have yet been pronounced dead by the time there is someone working my shift for me. Exactly. That is the bottom line. We work ourselves to the bone for very low wages, very incomprehensive, non-comprehensive, non-comprehensive benefits packages, paid time off that we're not allowed to access, health insurance that we don't have time to access, and sacrificing our personal lives to fulfill this 40-hour workweek expectation, all for a company that will literally replace us within minutes. What you can't see is that I've just shrugged my shoulders so high that they are up to my ears because it's such a crock of shit. And, and this is the bill of goods that capitalism has sold the American workforce. And it's so frustrating that so many people subscribe to this and believe in it and say this is the best system that we can have. Not just that it's a, the, the best system that we currently have out of all the systems that we have tried, um, but that it is the culmination and zenith of all human economic systems. And I think it's really important to point out that in America specifically, we've never tried any other system. This is it. This is literally what we started with. This is like marrying your high school sweetheart and saying, this is as good as it's going to get. You're stupid. Full stop. I'm sorry, I know that's probably rude and kind of divisive, but... If, if you're looking at the system that we have had since this country was founded and you're saying, yeah, this works, we should keep it, you're an idiot. It's, it's really just that flat. And then there are the more psychosocial aspects of, of wage slavery, because that's, that's essentially what we're talking about is wage slavery. So it, it is incomprehensibly common for new people to meet and discuss what they do and maybe if one of the people is super uncouth they ask how much you make doing your job and there is this this kind of social stratification based on the work that you do and the amount of money you make doing it I think we've we've probably all seen examples of this if we haven't necessarily been part of of this kind of discussion 
but there's there's this really big emphasis on I make more money than you, so that must make me better than you. Or I make less money than he does, so that must mean that I'm not as good as him. And it's something that is so embedded and so endemic to our society and the way that we carry our country. We see we see poverty and low wage and bankruptcy as moral failings. We see it as, well, you must have done something wrong. You must be a bad person if you're unemployed, if you're poor, if you're a minimum wage worker. If they're you're houseless. It, there must be something morally, ethically problematic about you. And that's just absolute bullshit. Because there is nothing connecting our inherent moral existence to how much money you make and going back to what you were saying about how you know people casually meeting um for dating and whatnot will ask each other oh what do you do for work what how much do you make you know what's your what's your wage what's your work what do you do and i recall back in my days of being physically generous that even just for a casual hookup, people will ask, oh, what do you do for work? What's your, what's your line of business? What, what kind of work do you do? And it's like, I'm sorry, does that really, how does that bear on the, the that, interaction that we're having on, right on, now? On the business at hand? Like, why is that part of our social fabric is, do you have a job? What is your job? How much do you make with that job? And, and I get it to an extent where if you are looking for a lifelong mate, you want to know that you're able to provide equally to the relationship. I get that to an extent, but it shouldn't be to the point of looking down on someone because, oh, they only make this or they do this kind of work. And I know that that kind of work is very low paid. But the, the reality is that there is no bad work. No. There is no work that is undeserving of a living wage. And, and like I said earlier, it's it, any job worth being done by a person is worth being paid a living wage. And I, I think this was something I was saying to you actually um, either last week or at some point when you were recently here. Um, I had just come back from a trip to some fast food restaurant. I don't it's not important where it was. Um, but I had a really, really bad experience. They screwed up the whole order. They had to start over. They took forever to make a sandwich. It was ridiculous. Does that mean that those people who were doing a really bad job in that moment, does that mean that they don't deserve a living wage? Absolutely not. Just because they were having a bad day and just because they made mistakes right then and there... That, that doesn't mean that they don't deserve to have a living wage. You'll please excuse the puppy noises. She's now 11 weeks old and sleeping on us. Okay. 
aside from the the kind of social stratification in in just casual conversations with the people that we surround ourselves with there's also this inherent idea that if you have a low paying job you're not going to be able to pursue your own personal dreams ambitions and goals and financially that may be true but what socialists fight for is a future where that's not the case where your type of work doesn't define the quality of your life as a human being because as a person you are worth so much more than your job there is so there are so many more components to you as a human being than the work that you do and the amount of money that you're compensated for that work. And it, it goes back to that core belief that for some reason American hold, America holds that poverty is a moral failing is that we also believe that people who live in poverty don't deserve to have things as basic as vacation. Like taking time away is normal, that's natural, that should be the expectation. We should be able to pursue our hobbies and our interests and be able to develop our knowledge by pursuing education, even if it's education that can't be monopolized or monetized. Like if you want to study the history of art or if you want to study fashion, you should be able to without worrying about how am I going to be able to leverage this for money? How am I going to be able to turn this into a job. I've got to look for something really fast because there's there's a disgusting bill that touches on what you just talked about. Oh, in Florida, yes. Oh, that's where it was. I was trying to remember where it was. Fucking so in, Florida, man. In Florida, state senators are trying to introduce a bill that will restrict the distribution of financial aid funds, which are federally provided. They're not provided at the state level, but these state senators want to intervene in that, that federal student aid disbursement system and say, you get full aid if you go for these types of, of fields that are useful to the state right now. And if you want to pursue something that isn't useful to the state, we're not going to give you as much money. That's so disgusting. Imagine, if you will, you decide that you want to be an architect. It's what you're passionate about. And you have some really innovative ideas for low, foot, low footprint housing, so that we can try and solve our housing crisis, manufactured as it is, through providing these low footprint socialized housing models like we see in the UK. And you go, you, you get enrolled in school, and you are ready to go, and all of a sudden, some bureaucrat says, hey, so this isn't actually part of the statewide program that we're looking for. So you're only going to get 30% of your student aid, and you're going to have to pay 70% of your tuition on your own. Can you imagine? And that's, I, 
I think realistically in that specific term, architecture is probably something that they would consider valuable. But let's apply it to fashion. Fashion. That's. I think that is a really good example because we always see fashion and we see the big commercial houses like Versace and Balenciaga and Lobaton, and we see these extravagant, hyper-wealthy items, and we think, oh, that's just a waste. That's just, you know, a complete and total luxury. That's not something that really applies to the common man. And I'm about to have a very big Miranda Priestly moment, and I hate myself for it. I apologize. I was literally just thinking, this is a Devil Wears Prada moment. This is absolutely a Devil Wears Prada. Fashion is, first of all, fashion is a form of art. It is an artistic expression through textiles that are worn, in short. But it is also, it's where we get clothing from. Even things as simple as the sweatpants I'm wearing and the jeans you're wearing. These were devised and determined and created by artists working in the fashion field decades and centuries ago. Art and fashion followed the human existence for thousands of years. And people express themselves and express their personalities through what they wear. So if you have someone who comes along and says, I don't like the way that we wear this article of clothing. I'm going to change it. And they want to go to school to refine their technical skills on fashion design, and they want to build their knowledge of the history of fashion and the history of art. And they go to Florida. Oh, I just had to swallow my own vomit. They go to Florida, and this bureaucrat says, Oh, you're going into fashion design? Mm-mm. No we're only going to give you 30%. And now your dream has been squelched and you have been put down. And I think I think you're absolutely right that fashion is probably the best example that we can use for this because there are a lot of other implications because fashion has historically been determined by white people who are generally male and what we're doing if we allow a bill such as this in in florida to pass is excluding female designers who who look at the clothing that men have designed and say this is this is stupid this is not what women are looking for give us something functional you pockets Give us pockets. Give us Why pockets. do dresses not have pockets? Every dress should have pockets. <laughs> every article of clothing that humans wear in the 21st century should have pockets. I, I know every woman I know would be ecstatic if dresses all came with pockets. But also, it would, it would close the door to BIPOC designers and BIPOC creators who want to get into fashion because what they see is a lot of white fashion that maybe doesn't fit their body type the same way it fits a white body type. And so they want to become fashion designers so that they can design and produce clothing and garments that fit their specific types of bodies. It, it closes the doors to, to fat artists who want to become designers and say, you know what, there's no reason that because I'm fat, 
I should look frumpy. And it really, it, it closes the door to anyone who isn't... It, okay. It closes the door to anyone who is not a white, well-off male, essentially, if we're using very general terms. It excludes, like you said, women. Like you said, BIPOC. It excludes LGBT, queer people. And we continue to have this industry that is dominated by white males that is typically built for women, even though the women are not the people who are actually coming up with the designs. I don't know if this is the point that you're about to get to, but those clothing items aren't designed to be functional for women. They're designed to cater to the male gaze. Thank you for getting to my point. Yes, they are designed to make women more attractive to men. That is what male fashion for women amounts to. And if we could open the door to fashion to people who are people of color, who have indigenous ancestry, who come from cultures outside of the white straight male culture, if you want to call it a culture, and you can have all these cultural backgrounds get introduced into the crucible that is fashion and you can see cultural designs and cultural legacies get transformed and updated for the 21st century which is what we have seen in streetwear and sportswear for mainstream white americans you know we see uh the hoodie we see jeans we see trackies exactly we see comfort wear that is designed for and by white people and if we can allow more people from more backgrounds, we can see articles from other cultures go through that same change process and become as ubiquitous and as accessible to other people who have that background, but who might feel stymied by antiquity and by history. And I think another important consideration, and please remember that while we're talking about fashion, this is a conversation that can be applied almost universally to any field. Because by, by locking out people based on sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, ethnicity, ability, whatever you want to lock people out for, you're, you're hindering progress. You're stifling innovation. And, and this is where really this conversation ties back to our larger conversation today about how your worth is more than your wage. Because when you, when you look at the typical corporate infrastructure, there are tons of people at the bottom of the pyramid making very small amounts of money. And then it goes up and up and up and up until you reach the pinnacle where some three, five, seven people don't do anything to create wealth but they're making the most amount of money. And those, those people in the C-suite at the top, they're not the innovators. They're not the creatives. They're not the people that are looking at processes and saying, hey, this is a way that we can be more efficient. Or, hey, this is a, a thing that we need. Can we create it? Those 
conversations are initiated at the very bottom level by the workers, by the people who are doing the job and showing up day after day and doing the work. And when, when we're closing off that innovation based on whatever arbitrary background criteria we're choosing to screen against, we just get more of the same over and over and over. You, as the working class of America, hold so much more power than you think that you do because you are not the people that deserve a subsistence wage. You deserve a thriving wage because you are doing the work. You are innovating. You are creating and introducing products and making it so that everything in the country continues to function. And if, if all of us, as, as the working class in the United States, were all on the same page, and we all stood up and said, you know what, capitalism, this isn't working, that conversation would be over. And I think that is a natural conclusion to this conversation. I don't know why I do that. I'm sorry. Thank you for joining us for this week's Social Cast. Social Cast publishes a new episode every Sunday, so make sure to add us to your podcast library to be notified of new content. Social Cast is available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Join the conversation with us on social media. Find us on Facebook under Social Cast Podcast and on Twitter at SocialCastPod. If you're interested in supporting SocialCast, you can find us on patreon.com forward slash SocialCast.